everyone, you can turn in your Bible or device to Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16. That's where we're going to spend most of our time uh, today. And before we talk about giving, uh, we have a, 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 to first settle this very important issue. I like to call it the ownership issue. Uh, Greg Laurie told a story one time of an elderly woman who had just finished up her shopping at the grocery store. Uh, she headed out to her car in the parking lot, and as she approached her vehicle, she saw four men inside her car. And, and the increasing crime rate in America was disgusting to her, and she had long prepared for this very moment. And so she dropped her shopping bags, she drew out the handgun that she'd purchased from her purse, and she screamed, I have a gun, and I know how to use it. Now get out of my car. The, the, the men did not wait for a second invitation. The doors were opening, bodies were flying, four men ran like crazy from this gun-toting grandma. Despite her, her, her Clint Eastwood confidence, the woman was very shaken by the experience. It took her a moment to gather her, herself and her shopping bags and, and get into her car. And she kept an eye out for the hoodlums on the horizon. Thankfully, they were still running the other way. And so she put the pistol back in her purse. She got out her keys. And for a moment, she thought the problem was her trembling hand. But no matter how hard she tried, she, she couldn't get her key to turn the ignition. After repeated attempts, she, she took a better look at the car and it didn't seem quite as familiar as it once had. At about that time, she noticed an almost identical car parked four or five spaces away, which was her car, and she realized that she had just become the next statistic in America's crime wave. She was officially a carjacker. And according to the story, uh, she transferred the groceries to her own car. She drove to the police station immediately to turn herself in. And the desk sergeant who, uh, who, who, who she told the story to nearly fell off his chair laughing. And when he finally composed himself, he pointed down to the other end of the counter where four frightened young men were there to report a gun-wielding granny. And after she made a full apology, no charges were, were, were filed. But that, that grandma made the mistake that we all sometimes make with God, and that is assuming material stuff is ours when it's not really ours. Like we do it all the time. It's the ownership issue. Everything that you have is ultimately not yours. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Suggesting as a gift. Everything that you have is a gift from God. He's the owner, you're the manager. The other word that we use is steward. You and I are stewarding God's stuff. So, so your car, gift from God. Your home, gift from God. Your clothes, gift. Your food, gift. Your technology, gift. It all comes from God. But, but people will push back and they'll say, but, I, but I'm the one who worked for it. I'm the one who paid my dues. I'm the one who went to school. Well, like, where was God when I was studying? Where was God when I was up for that promotion? Where was God when I was closing that deal? And I'm here to tell you that if God didn't give you a whole bunch of stuff, like if God didn't give you your next breath, you wouldn't have been there for any of that stuff. If God hadn't given you some of your abilities and if God hadn't given you gifts and put you in the land of opportunity, if God had not done a whole bunch of stuff, you wouldn't ever be able to have anything. It is all a gift from God. And so Christians, we, we have a radically different view of money than the rest of the world because we know that it's all from God. Commercials say, no, no, spend it all on yourself. Like you earned it, you deserve it. And God comes and he says, no, no, everything that you have is a result of my goodness to you. And so I, I ask you now to manage it, he says, under my supervision. And so the next question that usually comes is, well, like, how much of my wealth then should I give to God? And I would suggest this is the wrong question. 
You know what's the right question? How much of God's wealth should I keep for my own use? There's a big difference in those two questions, a big difference in those approaches. The first attitude is, why should I give anything to God? But the second one, the Christian one, is why should God let me keep anything that's his in the first place? It's an issue of ownership. And once you've established the ownership issue that all that you have belongs to God, then it begins to free you toward generosity. You begin to say, I'm going to leverage these resources toward things that are important to God. And so here's today's big idea. We honor God with our faithful giving. Hopefully you're at Luke 12 by now. Jesus is responding to a heckler in the crowd. A man yells out from the crowd and he says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is the worst kind of dispute, by the way. Two siblings arguing about the inheritance. Like some of you have been there. It's ugly. And so this guy gets one shot at Jesus and he chooses to ask him how he can get more money. And Jesus basically says, I'm not interested in that one. But, but, but then he does end up answering with this profound statement. He says, but be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's verse 15. So, so Jesus is saying to this guy, you're entering a danger zone here. Like any time you find yourself coveting, coveting is just wanting more and more for yourself. He says, you're walking on thin ice. And the problem for us in America is we don't see coveting as a sin. We see it as a way of life. Social media, YouTube, fashion, advertising, they're all ways for us to covet, for us to look at what other people have and to say, I want that. And yet in the Ten Commandments, commandment number 10 says, no coveting. Exodus 20 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or covet your neighbor's wife or his servant or his male servant, his female servant, his ox. Like in today's language, that's like, don't look at your neighbor and want his tools, his truck, her apartment, his vibe, her meals. Like anything that is your neighbor's where you find yourself saying, I need that thing. Jesus says, red flags should come up. Be on your guard against that. It leads you down a dangerous path. And then he says th these words, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, that's the punchline of this whole passage, by the way. You can circle it, underline it, whatever. But we get the, the punchline right up front. Jesus is exposing a lie. And the lie claims that life does consist of the abundance of possessions. Like, the lie is that the goal of your life is to accumulate, to live it up, to arrive at the end of your life with the biggest pile. And I, what's the phrase? You know, I've, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? It's, it's, you can't take it with you. And, and so Jesus kind of makes this statement, and then he goes on to tell a parable that, that, that's going to illustrate this point. And again, the point is not just don't accumulate stuff. The, the next step to that point is to actually be generous with your stuff. And so as we work through this passage, I want to point out four understandings that lead to generosity. So again, look at verse 16. Remember, he's responding to a guy from the crowd asking Jesus to tell his brother to give him the inheritance. Okay, here's verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And so we're introduced here to the main character of our story. A parable. It's a businessman, and his company was on a hot streak. Like he'd been, he'd be right at home in our society. Probably a workaholic. He's doing whatever it takes to succeed, and it took everything. And he was on a roll. 
And in verse 17, we learn our first understanding that leads to generosity, that this man hits a major crossroads, and here's what he has to learn. When you have extra, maybe it's not for you. Like his crops were plentiful. He ran out of storage, and so he hits this moment of decision. When, when there's extra, you see, you have a decision. And now some of you are like, whew, like I don't have to listen to this part because I don't have any extra. Let me, let me press you on that for a minute. Because I would suggest in America in 2023, if you're within the sound of my voice, we all have extra. Like when we hear a story like this in the Bible that's called the parable of the rich fool, we invariably think, whew, yeah, rich people, we don't like rich people. Here's the problem. We are the rich people. All of us. Like the guy in this story was achieving a financial status that the vast majority of us have already achieved. We enjoy it every day. See, our culture keeps us so focused on the things that we don't have, the cars that we don't drive, the houses that we don't live in, that, that we've been tricked into thinking that we're always lacking, that the person in the category or two above us financially, that they're the rich ones, but not me. The truth is that, that compared to 95% of the world, you and I, we all of us, we have lots of extra. I'll just give you a few examples. Ever eat out? Like, if you eat out, it means you have extra money. L let me just rephrase. Do you, do you ever eat out for historical accuracy? Do you ever pay a whole staff of people to prepare your food and then serve you food? Because if you look through history, what I just described is the treatment of kings. Do you ever spend money to entertain yourself, like shows, movies, trips, subscription services? D do you drive your own vehicle? You realize only three to 5% of people in the world own a car. Or, or do you have a comfortable place to live? Like, is that place dry? Is the air perfectly temperate for your comfort, warm in the winter, cool in the summer? Do you have running water in your home? Like maybe even both hot and cold water options. What about labor-saving devices with fingertip controls, maybe a washer, a dryer, refrigerator, microwave? Maybe in addition to having a house for yourself, do you also have a little house for your car? We call it a garage. Our English friends would call it a garage. It's a house for your car. And I would venture to guess that that little house for your car is bigger than most houses around the world for families. Like I've been, homes, I've been in the homes of our, our friends in the DR and in Haiti and in Thailand and Mexico. And, and if you can stand in a 10 by 10 structure that acts as a bedroom, living room, kitchen, dining room for a family of five, like you're confronted with a question, why have I been entrusted with so much? Guys, this isn't a guilt trip at all, okay? It's just a reminder that we've all been blessed with extra. Let us talk clothes for a minute. But most people through history had one or two garments that would protect them from the elements. We have clothes for every occasion. We have pajama clothes, we have work clothes, relaxed clothes, exercise clothes, workout in the yard clothes. We have seasonal clothes, certain colors that you wear at certain times of the year, certain sleeve lengths and pant lengths. Most of you probably have a little room in your house for, your, for all your clothes that aren't in season. We call it an attic. Guys, we have extra. And don't get me started on garage sales and sheds and storage units. Like, we have so much extra that, that we don't even know what to do with it. And so we rent other people's buildings to store all of our extra stuff. Again, this isn't meant to judge. This is not to guilt anyone. I'm just attempting to remind us that even the poorest person in the room today, compared to 95% of people in the world, we have extra. And when you have extra, you have 
a decision because maybe all the extra is not for you. And you and I have to ask, what should we do with it? The man in our story faces this same moment, this decision, and in verse 18, we see that he decides what to do. He spends it on himself. Look at verse 18. It says, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the second understanding from these four verses that leads us to generosity is this. It's that your lifestyle doesn't always need to keep pace with your income. So, so the man had extra, and he thought his next move was bigger barns. And, and he made the same assumption that most Americans make. His assumption was, if I have extra, it's for me. If God has blessed me with extra, it's for my consumption. And, and, and we don't build bigger barns necessarily. We just upgrade. We trade up. We buy nicer houses. We buy better cars. And listen, as we talked about last week with, with credit card debt, sometimes people don't even wait for the extra to come. They upgrade before they even have the money to do it. They, they just charge it to their credit card. And, and so this man actually shows us that it's a sin to think that whenever I have extra, it must all be for me. So he builds bigger barns. And Jesus has this brilliant way of drawing people into a, into a parable or a story. And, and so just as the crowd is starting to lean in and they're starting to get envious of this rich guy, Jesus says, and, and right at the height of his success, right at the, gross, the, the growth of his empire, the guy dies. And for all the cost-benefit analysis, for all the cash flow, uh, flow projections, for all the numbers that he crunched along the way, the one scenario that he forgot to take into account was his own soul, his mortality. And he dies. And as everyone stands up at the man's funeral and eulogizes him, and they're saying words like innovator and entrepreneur and a man of principle, a pillar of the community, leader, visionary, successful, Jesus sneaks into the back pew at the funeral. And he waits for a quiet moment during the sharing time. And he stands up and he offers his one-word assessment of the man's legacy. Fool. We're like, whoa, a little harsh, isn't it, Jesus? But look what verse 20 says. It says, but God said to him, you fool. Why was he a fool? I would contend that he wasn't a fool for being wealthy. I mean, his crops, they were just abundant. He didn't manufacture that. God had allowed him the wealth. It's not that he had extra that made him foolish. So why the harsh words? I, I imagine him asking God this very question, why am I a fool? And God replying, because you thought all the extra was all for you. You thought that as income came in, that your lifestyle had to keep up with it. Verse 21, he, he said that the problem is you laid up all these treasures for yourself, but you are not rich toward God. He's not saying don't be successful. He's saying in the process, you need to learn generosity, sharing your extra, giving to kingdom projects. You see, one of the ways that, to assure that there's room for this to happen is to, to make the decision to live below your means. 
So, so many people are living above their means. It's that, that's when their lifestyle actually outpaces their income, which means every extra dollar that comes in is leveraged to keep up the charade that says, I've made it, I've arrived, I'm, I'm successful. I just know one of the decisions that Kim and I made early in our marriage is that we would always live well below our means. So, so we'd always have room for generosity, and we've been true to that commitment all the way along. So, so in addition to his barn-building investment plan, this guy needed to have a robust generosity plan so that he could be rich toward God. You see, to keep our heart right and to assure that we get to the end of our life and avoid being called a fool by God, we need a plan to prioritize God in our finances. And this is not easy, but this is an outflow of your faith. And I would ask you, is your faith in your ability to earn and acquire and accumulate? Or is your faith in God's ability to take care of his children? Now, I think this story brings up the, the issue of retirement. So let me just talk about retirement for just a moment. Does this text mean that everyone who has a retirement plan is a fool? And I think, no, of course not. But, but here's what I want you to consider. What's driving the motivation of retirement for you. It's not a sin if you make enough money that someday you don't have to get up and go to work every day. But that doesn't mean that your whole goal is just to eat and drink and play shuffleboard and wear flip-flops and hang out all day with a bunch of other people who slather themselves with therapeutic cream and talk about surgeries while sipping drinks with umbrellas in them, okay? And you just kind of check out on life and coast to the finish line. That is not the goal of life. That's the American dream. But God has a word for that foolish because if you retire even if you retire from work you don't retire from your calling see the driving goal of our lives is not a comfortable finish line it's doing Christ's work in the world Craig Groeschel said it this way if you're not dead you're not done so so don't hang up your cleats for the final chapter so here's the point your lifestyle doesn't need to keep pace with your income the goal is to be rich toward God and he wraps up this section in verses 32 to 34 where Jesus starts to get very practical with all this. How do we avoid falling into materialism and selfishness like the rich fool did in this story? Well, look what he, what he says in 32. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. I would sum up this third understanding this way. It's to raise your awareness of kingdom needs, not just earthly wants. See, we get freaked out when we read verses like this, and we probably should, by the way. I, I do not want to soften the blow of this text in any way. I don't want to try to explain it away. We should all take texts like this way more seriously than we do and make some adjustments immediately, each in our own way, to divest in some possessions and, and be more generous with others, especially the poor. But notice what the reason is that this text says that we can be so liberal in our generosity. It's because right at the beginning, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So like if you had a dad who, who has really deep pockets, like Daddy Warbucks, right? He, he's the one providing for you. He's the one bankrolling you. Remember, we're just the managers. He's the owner. And so when you have a dad like that, it allows you to be really generous with dad's money. But I want us to dig down to an important principle that I think comes in light of this verse. I think one of the remedies for materialism is a proper awareness of the needs around you. 
Like we can get all caught up in our own little bubbles of, of, of our own wants and, and so-called needs. And if we're not careful, our eyes will get so fixed on that, that next item or that next outfit or that next gadget that we can lose all focus on the needs around us. Like when you're scrolling Amazon, when you're scrolling Facebook Marketplace or Etsy or whatever your shopping site of choice is, your awareness is on your own desires. And I'll just confess, like I'm as materialistic as the next person. Can I just confess that? Like I like stuff, especially electronics. And I like books and I like vinyl records. And I can work very hard in my mind to justify why I need, not just want, why I need those things. And I've discovered that what drives my lust for stuff happens to be awareness. Do you know I've never wanted one single thing that I didn't know was out there? It's true, but there have been many things that as soon as I found out they were out there, suddenly I wanted them. And my brain then starts working overtime to convince myself and usually my wife that I don't just want it, I need it. But, but here's the other side of that coin. As I become more systematically aware of the needs in the world around me, of the needs in our community, of the needs in our church, it has helped me to rein in my quest for more gadgets and more stuff and to funnel some of that energy toward kingdom needs. That's the power of awareness. And so when you get involved in Servieri, when you, you sponsor a school in the DR or in Haiti, or you volunteer at a homeless shelter, or, or even get involved in the kids' ministry here at Grace or youth ministry here at Grace, or maybe you take a class at GLI and you sit next to it and you see the impact of that class on an under-resourced leader, suddenly you become personally aware of needs. You're exposing yourself to real situations. You see them with your own eyes. And something powerful happens when Christians come face to face with needs. So, so, so listen, you don't become less materialistic by trying to become less materialistic. You become less materialistic by refocusing your awareness on the needs of the world around you. Increased kingdom of awareness will help to direct your treasures to kingdom ventures, which this verse tells us does not fail. So we said some understandings that lead to generosity are when you have extra, maybe it's not for you, that, that your lifestyle doesn't always need to keep pace with your income and, and that you raise your awareness of kingdom needs, not just earthly ones. Finally, Jesus concludes this section with, with these famous words, starting in verse 34. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Here's the fourth understanding. It's to allow your money to lead your heart into generosity. Now, that sounds a little funny, doesn't it? It almost sounds backwards. Shouldn't your heart be leading your money? Like it sounds almost unspiritual to say that your money leads your heart. We would expect the verse to say, wherever your heart is, your money will follow. But he actually says exactly the opposite thing. He says, your heart will follow the money trail. Which means, if you put some money into fantasy football, guess where your heart's gonna be? Check in those statistics. If you put some money into cryptocurrency, guess what you're gonna be checking all the time? If you spend money on collections, if you spend money on clothes, if you spend money on furniture or hobbies, your heart is gonna follow after those things. We care about our money, so we care about the things that our money funds. And so Jesus' point is that this, if you wanna get your heart to the right place, put your money in the right place. 
If you want your heart to be spiritual, put your money in spiritual ventures. Make your money lead your heart into generosity. It's why I think God's idea of percentage giving is so brilliant. Because when I decide to be a percentage giver, when I give the first percentage of my income to God and to his church, you know what it does? It leads my heart toward the right stuff. It forces me to adjust my kingdom and my lifestyle accordingly. It keeps me from ever giving him leftovers. It keeps me from ever getting to the end of the month and and looking at my finances and saying, well, let me see how much I have so I can decide how much I'll give. It ensures that I don't allow every resource that comes my way to be gobbled up by me first in greed and materialistic tendencies. So, So percentage giving allows me to decide up front to be generous. And it doesn't leave my giving in the hands of my feelings or my emotions in the moment, which can be unpredictable and untrustworthy, by the way. So generosity starts with a decision, just like every other important thing. I am upfront choosing my priorities. And this is one of the reasons that I believe so strongly in, 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 by the way, electronic giving options that we have here at Grace, where you can automate your giving. What what are you doing? You're deciding upfront to be generous. And if you wanna see results with anything in life, you put a system in place, like that. So so take two guys and a dentist. Sounds like the start of a bad joke. One of the guys, every time he goes to the dentist, he schedules his next trip. You ever do that? You get it in the books, your next visit. The other guy waits until he's in the mood to see the dentist. Which guy will enter his retirement years with all his teeth? It's the guy who built it into his schedule. If you want results, you put a system in place. The same thing is true with giving. The question that always comes up when I talk about percentage giving is, well, how much are you talking about? And where should I give it? Well, let me answer this way. In the Old Testament, God set up a practice. He put it in place that would systematically remind people that all they have is his and that a portion of it should go back to him right at the very beginning. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel the practice of tithing, that is giving 10% of one's income to God. Actually, if you add it all up in the Old Testament, all the tithes that were required, it was actually north of 30%. But the word tithe means tenth. Now, In the New Testament, the tithe is hinted at, but it's not directly commanded by Jesus. However, as usual, Jesus came and he raised the bar. And so the New Testament teaching is not that 10% of your stuff is God's, but that 100% of your stuff is God's. He reminds us that everything is on loan to you, but it's all his. And so here at Grace, we, we, we encourage the tithe, but it, it, we encourage it as a starting place. It's a kind of training wheels to true generosity. Uh, our boys were both pole vaulters, and in the pole vault, there's this thing called uh, opening height. Opening height is like the entry requirement to get into the competition. Like if you wanna play, you have to clear opening height. I think about tithing kind of like opening height. If you're a Christian and, 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 and you're keeping more than 90% of God's money to be used by yourself, you have to really rethink that arrangement. God created us so that our hearts would imitate his heart, and he is a generous God. He gives and gives and gives. Now, there's some of you who aren't doing this, 
And, 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 and some of you, honestly, are just a decision away from going on this adventure with God. I know tons of stories of people who went cold turkey into this. They were like, screw it. They just started giving 10% of their income away. No turning back. It is a soul-expanding, heart-pounding adventure of generosity that we're all supposed to be on, by the way. And there are some of you, for a variety of reasons, you, you can't go straight to 10% to start out. But I want to challenge you not just to kind of toss the idea aside. I want to challenge you to do something. Would you choose a percentage that's somewhere between where you are now and 10% and just to prioritize this and do it again and again? Be consistent. And listen, if you're in a rut or a crisis or you have some serious debt, we have this great course starting soon at all locations. It's called Financial Peace University. You can find information at whoisgrace.com slash next. But do something to get in the generosity game. And frankly, there are some of you who don't even feel 10%. It's not even a challenge for you. You should start asking the question, is my giving at my current percentage helping to lead my heart to generosity? And if it's not, it's time to ratchet it up. Let your money take your heart for a little joyride. And then there's the question of where should you give? And there are many wonderful organizations and causes to give to. Kim and I partner financially with, with lots of them. But call me old school. I just can't get away from this idea in the Bible that Christians should focus the majority of their giving to their primary community of faith, their church. I would expect believers who call grace their church home, who attend here, who are spiritually fed here, who are involved in the mission here, to have the majority of their kingdom giving going here and not to other organizations. The, the local church is God's main strategy for the redemption of the planet until he comes back. And our resources can accomplish more together. That The Bible talks about tithes and offerings. And so after your primary giving is directed to your local church, there are other amazing causes in our community and around the world that you should funnel some of your generosity toward as well. So let me challenge you with one more thing about generosity. And it's simply this. Don't wait. So many people think, you know, I'll be generous once I have more. It's just been proven again and again that this rarely happens. As your income levels go up, the percentage of charitable giving actually goes down. And so start now because the point here is this, that your money leads your heart. And as more of your money is invested in kingdom stuff, then more of your heart is softened and surrendered to the kingdom. So will you take the next step? and step forward in your giving today. I've given a bunch of practical ideas throughout my message, but let me just highlight one, that no matter where you're at in this journey, take the FPU class. It starts next week. But the other thing I would ask you to consider is just kind of this progression. If you're not giving at all, start giving something. If you're giving haphazardly, start giving systematically. If you're tipping God a small percentage, move toward a tithe. And if you keep forgetting, Set up an electronic account. God is honored by our faithful giving, and it's good for your heart, too. Let me close today with just this thought. You know, generosity has as its source the grace of God. And one of the ways that you will know that you've truly experienced the grace of God is that you'll become more generous. Like, if you need to be coerced to give, it's an indicator that you've never fully experienced or grasped His grace. Because if you've truly experienced the grace of God, your mindset about your possessions radically changes. When you realize what Jesus has done for you, everything else becomes expendable. 
You know that you really love someone when you're willing to give them everything. Married people, you know this. Remember your wedding ceremony? You, you stood there and looked another person in the eyes and you said, everything I have is yours. It's pretty radical what love will do to our wallets. I watched my kids wrestle with this truth as they've had girlfriends and boyfriends along the way. That there comes that date or that dance or that fancy meal and they look at me and go, dang, this is expensive, dad. And there's this like cost-benefit analysis going on in their heads. Like, do I love her $20 worth? Do I love her $100 worth? And love does funny things to our wallets, doesn't it? And when we're talking about God's love, he said to us, I'm giving you everything I have. Remember the famous verse, God so loved the world, what did, what did he do? He gave. He didn't just give anything, he gave his son. And when we experience that kind of love and grace, a true believer says, God, I owe you everything in return. Someone who's just playing the religious game says, God, you owe me. I've worked hard. Look at look what I'm doing for you. You need to give me this. You need to give me that. But the per, that, that's a person who hasn't experienced grace. And so if radical generosity doesn't make sense to you, you haven't grasped the grace of God. That's okay. But if that's you, I'd say don't worry about the money thing right now. It's your relationship with God that needs straightened out. Focus on that. And focus on his radical grace because the money stuff will make sense in time once you get that figured out. I'm really excited about next week. I'm going to be preaching on something most of you have probably never heard a sermon on before, and that's spending. You'll probably expect one thing. I think you'll find another. So be sure to come back for next week. I love you guys.